once you've you've left this theological worldview, it's it's hard to understand why people stay in it. Yeah. Um, in fact, from the outside looking in, we see the vast majority of, of mega churches are are conservative, evangelical, and white, um, and they seem to have the largest platform to continue pushing this biblical worldview that restricts gender um, hierarchy and promotes God ordained male headship and female submission. You're researching the interview of you know, folks from this camp. What's your take on why they seem to be the largest churches across the country? And, and what does that tell you about our society's inclination towards gender exclusivity? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carlisle Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Kristen Coeys Dumay. She is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She is also a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book, Jesus and John Wayne. She also contributes to the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, and Christianity Today. Kristen, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So we spoke in uh, July. I was looking back at my calendar. July of 2021. Uh, and you had this like little known research project that you were just kind of floating out into the world called Jesus and John Wayne. <laughs> do, you, do you have any news to report about your life and work over the last two years? Oh, I mean, it's become my life. It's, it's, it's a, I can't even remember really what it was like before. It's been pretty all consuming and, and not, not in a bad way necessarily, but I, it's, it's been, it's been a lot. So what the, the really, the best part is that it, brings me into conversation I mean, with people like you, with people all over the country and all over the world who care about these things, who care about thinking about Christianity, thinking about Christianity in public life, who share similar concerns. And so it's actually been really beautiful. I didn't anticipate the demands of my time, to be honest, of what this would look like and how relentless this would be. And right now we're almost, almost three years out um, from its publication, and it, if anything, is more intense now than when it first came out. Yeah. So, small anecdote, you know, for those that kind of wouldn't know this from the conversation, we were talking about earlier today that you're here in Winston-Salem for CBF North Carolina's event, and somebody unrelated to our event recognized you on the street last night and tagged yeah. you on, you know, Twitter. It's like, you know, you your face and your name has, has come out there. And my favorite thing, uh, besides you know people talking about how amazing you are, is just how much people will butcher your name. Uh, <laughs> yes. I've corrected our staff so many times <laughs> as they've been talking about bringing you in. So, so uh, American evangelicalism has been under the eye of scrutiny over the last couple decades. Um, more books and podcasts and videos um, are out there, and and I've, I'll try to say this as nicely as possible. Um, you know, people have been analytically looking at it from a different perspective of American Christianity. Um, your book obviously highlights the culture of toxic masculinity and militarism and misogyny and sexism and sexual abuse among evangelicals. As you've been speaking and traveling, what other Christian expressions have been maybe hiding in the shadows that reflect a similar culture as American evangelicalism? Hmm. 
other religious cultures you're thinking in particular? Well, other Christian, maybe even Christian denominations or movements. Uh, that also display kind of these toxic elements? Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, I, I don't mean to suggest, I wrote a book on white evangelicals, but sometimes white evangelicals who feel a little defensive <laughs> push back and say, oh yeah, well, why aren't you pointing out the problems in mainline churches? Why aren't you pointing out the problems in Hollywood? Why aren't you pointing out the problems, you know, all these other spaces? And it's a little um, odd to be asked that because I'm, I'm not... Uh, you know, I, I don't really see my profession as finding problems and exposing them. I find my, my profession as being a historian and looking very deeply into a subject. And so, you know, I spent more than 10 years on this book, um, not the actual writing, but the research and then setting aside and coming back again and more research. And, and after that amount of time, I have things to say. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually quite careful about drawing clear parallels to groups or cultures that I haven't looked at really closely. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, and mostly I hear not of, oh, there's this over here, but what I hear from a lot of people are um, adjacent sort kind of groups that didn't think they were evangelical, that, you know, claim not to be, and that they recognize some of these patterns and they also rec- recognize common influences. Mm-hmm. And so one of the arguments that I make is that evangelicalism, if we understand it as a cultural movement, as we understand it as a consumer culture, it does not respect denominational boundaries. It spills over. So, so many mainline churches are using evangelical literature in their Sunday schools, in their Bible studies. Uh, People who are not evangelicals listen to Christian radio. This is a global movement. And so I've heard from so many Christians around the globe who are seeing the influences, the pernicious influences of this brand of Christianity take hold in their own cultures in unique ways, but also in really toxic ways too. So I think that's more what I run into instead of seeing kind of the same manifestations in completely different spaces. You, along with a friend of the podcast, Beth Allison Barr, have been a dynamic duo as of late, (laughs) uh, tackling issues of uh, complementarianism. Um, Tell us about some of the the work you all have been doing together. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We kind of have been thrown together. I guess we we found each other in in our work before our work was public in any way, uh, just as scholars. And she came across when she was applying for a grant a proposal. I had gotten the grant the year before, and so she, my proposal was online, and she saw the substance of it, which was looking at female biblical interpretation. This was around my first book, and she thought, oh, you know, this is, she's doing that in the, Beth was doing that in the medieval era. I was doing it in American history, 19th, 20th century, and she just said, we need to get together. And so she brought me out for a little mini conference, and we got to know each other then. So it was really our disciplinary expertise that brought us together, that and, and being together in the Conference on Faith and History, an organization for Christian historians, where coming from different places, from different training, we, we were kind of working in the same general area as Christians, as Christian women, looking at the history of Christianity, but in a kind of critical scholarly way. And each of us understood that what we were exploring and what we were uncovering was relevant to Christian women today. And I think that both of us had that passion, right? We didn't set out to be public scholars at all. We kind of backed into this by just saying, hey, okay, my friends, you need to hear this. And I I would, you know, for me, I started putting things out on Facebook. And I think Beth started blogging and just saying, oh my goodness, here's what I found in the archive. You guys have to hear this because this matters because people are telling you things that are wrong. And this matters for Christian women especially. And that's how this got started. And so, yeah, we kind of tag team. We ended up blogging together. Beth invited me to join her at Anxious Bench. I actually was the one who tipped off her editor uh, for making a biblical womanhood, saying, hey, you want you want a good Christian book? Go talk to Beth. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, so we've been working like that. Just in that we recognize what each is doing. I know nothing about medieval history. Nothing. Most of what I know about it, I've learned from Beth reading her book. But, uh, but I see what that historical expertise, I see how it changes what we thought we knew about the history of Christianity in ways that I think are quite beautiful. Yeah. Um, 
you recently wrote a review of Beth Moore's memoir, and I don't want to get into a conversation about Beth Moore. That's not what we're going here. Oh, but, I'm happy to talk um, about Beth Moore. <laughs> and, and there's some, the radical changes that happen, um, you know, in her theological worldview over the last few years. You're reflecting on her journey um, out of uh, complementarianism and e into egalitarianism. You wrote about where people fall on this conversation matters, mm -hmm. and you wrote, for women as well as men, uh, it may well matter for your job. It may determine whether you're considered orthodox or a false teacher, whether your book will be published or read, and by whom, and whether you are considered friend or foe, but scratch beneath the surface and there's a stark division, and you'll find that there is no neat categories of complementarianism and egalitarianism means for all sorts of different things, and that encompasses a wide, even overlapping spectrum of interpretation and lived experience. Yeah. That statement alone, we could spend an entire podcast yeah. conversation going yeah. into. But I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there into, into what you're, you're getting at. Yeah, it, it, it reflects my frustration with the categories that it, inside evangelical spaces you're stuck with. And you know, are, you or are you egalitarian? Are you complementarian? And then people think they know everything about you, about your faith. And as a scholar, I know, first of all, how fluid those categories are, how relatively recent they are, and how they have specific meanings inside particular evangelical spaces. But that the whole world doesn't fit inside those categories. And so I kind of bristle at that, of having to reduce myself to placing myself in a box on somebody else's terms. And and at the same time, I acknowledge that these are real, and it does matter for your job in a lot of places. If you are, if if you're supposed to be complementarian, and then you say, "Now I'm egalitarian," you could very well lose your job. It matters, you know, the ideas of you know what women can and should do. That has very real repercussions for actual women in these spaces. So I don't want to say this doesn't matter at all, but the idea that these are crisp and clear boxes, categories. That's what I'm pushing back against because they absolutely are not. And there are a lot of quote unquote egalitarians who function uh, much like complementarians. And there are complementarians who, especially in their marriages, are really egalitarians. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we hold up these labels as absolutely um, essential for, for separating ourselves from each other. And this really came to me when I was first asked if, years ago uh, to give interviews about Beth Moore to the media. And one of the key questions back at that point was, you know, she was complementarian, uh, but was really getting you know, bullied out of the SBC. And she was saying some things about gender and about women, and she was pushing back against some of this patriarchal stuff. And so I was asked, is she going to switch, right? Is she going to switch from complementarian to egalitarian? Well, my answer to that was, I have no idea what Beth Moore is going to do because Beth Moore is going to do what she feels called to do. If you know Beth Moore, you know that much. Uh, what she thinks the Spirit is leading her to do, and I can't predict that. But also, it just seemed to me that that question so flattened who she was, mm -hmm. who she is, and all of the things that she is and what she's doing in religious spaces and what she's doing through her ministry and um, on the, the larger kind of public scene. And so I really found myself kind of resisting that flat characterization that, yeah, how we've, how we've just insisted on reducing people and reducing you know, the mystery of faith and a living faith to something that we can just stick in a little box, I think is, I think it's deeply wrong. And I think it's actually extremely damaging to the unity of the body of Christ. Hmm. Um, once you've you've left this theological worldview, it's it's hard to understand why people stay in it. Yeah. Um, in fact, from the outside looking in, we see the vast majority of, of megachurches are, are conservative, evangelical, and white. Yeah. Um, and they seem to have the largest platform to continue pushing this biblical worldview that restricts gender um, hierarchy and it promotes God-ordained male headship and female submission. Your research and interview, uh, you know, folks from this camp, what's your take on why they seem to be the largest churches across <laughs> the country? And, and what does that tell you about 
our society's inclination towards gender exclusivity? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, yeah, I think first of all, a lot of these churches don't advertise themselves as such. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, uh, especially some of these bigger mega churches. I mean, that's that's um, um, that's certainly been uh, some an accusation lobbed at a place like Hillsong, right? That they present themselves one way, and then you have to be there a while to hear about patriarchy and you hear about anti-LGBTQ and stuff. That's just not the public face that they put. And for many members, if, if you're if you're like popping in, grabbing a cup of you know, uh, if you're grabbing a latte in, in the um, you know in the foyer, and then go and you, you you go to church, and then you leave again, like that, it, it might not really matter all that much, or it might not seem to matter all that much to a lot of people. And then a lot of people, right? It's once you get invited into a church, and in, in any evangelical church, you're going to be embraced, you're going to be warmly welcomed. They are evangelists. And you're going to be welcomed into community, and that community is real, and you're going to be welcomed into small groups, and you're going to be encouraged, actually, to have as many of your social connections in that space. And your kids maybe go to the Christian school, or they're going to go to youth group and, and Sunday school, and they're going to, you're going to develop this web of, of connections, which is honestly a really good thing, um, generally speaking, but it is also conditional, hmm. right? And it doesn't become visible just how conditional it is until you run afoul of some rule or of, of some practice and then you can see the harsh side of this that that you know this friendship was conditional on you following the rules of you ascribing to these teachings but what that means also is it's really hard to extricate yourself from those spaces even if you start I mean I've talked to so many people who share these heart-wrenching stories of years and years where they knew things were not right and where they, you know, their families really suffered in those spaces, women who suffered in those spaces. But it's almost, almost a parallel to leaving an abusive relationship in that you are so embedded, your family is embedded, your connections, your relationships, and there's good that's mixed in with the bad. And so it's hard to leave that good behind. Um, and, and so that's not your exact question. That's like how it's hard for people to leave. How is it that these churches are the ones that are growing? Yeah, that's a that's a trickier question. So I was avoiding that one. Um, <laughs> hey, I didn't remind you. That's what it was. You did. <laughs> no, no. Um, that that's it is worth thinking about. And again, I go back to you know what is luring people in mm-hmm. here, um, and is it the patriarchy, or is it that you know patriarchal churches? Some of them and these conservative churches are the ones that are most comfortable with the big flashy you know multi-campus kind of consumerist expression of the faith and the truth is evangelicals tend to be very comfortable with that kind of consumer driven faith they excel at that and there's a history behind that because they see that you can sell the gospel and that if you have money from selling products, you can use that money to build a bigger church and to get a, you know, a bigger radio station and you can have bigger reach and all of that is for God's glory, right? Um, so they say, and absolutely many believe that, but so there's this kind of engine of bigger is better and reach and effectiveness and converts and all of that and other religious traditions just don't have that same thing, that same drive. Uh, I, I'm, I'm from a Reformed uh, tradition, and we are not evangelical in the sense that we are not evangelists in the same way at all. And part of that is coming from an ethnic community, too. And, and this is, I'm not saying this is better because there are real downsides then. If you're not one of us, you're just not one of us, right? It's hard to kind of gain access. But that means that there's also not the same growth movement of we need bigger, we need better, we, you know, we need multi-campuses. It's more this is who we are. Yeah. So I think that there is a lot of, I, I think we'd want to bring some sociologists around the table to do some more thinking, but I would, I would complicate it a little bit that it may not just be that patriarchy is attractive. That could be a side effect rather than a cause. Yeah. These are my words, not your words. As I was listening to you talk, this is how I was mm-hmm. formulating and thinking through. It seems rather cultish when you really step away from it and why it's so hard to leave is and you were talking about this earlier uh, in your lecture around faithfulness to the figure. Um, 
and I, I don't want to get either one of us in the trap of comparing <laughs> evangelical church to cults, but... Um, no, so, I have friends uh, yeah. who are cult specialists, <laughs> so I do not use that word. I know yeah. better. Yeah. Um, in your article from November of, of this last year on complement, uh, complementarian theology and sexual abuse, um, you wrote, um, I know that suggesting a correlation between complementarianism and violence towards women upsets people, but y'all, give a current state of the church too in conversations of evangelical churches how can we not talk about it? Why does correlation equal correlation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, act- I'm, I'm careful in how I, how I discuss the relationship between theology and abuse because theology is never an independent variable. And, um, but, and, and also when it comes to perpetrators, right? And that's where I think people are, are, are looking, you know, I, I'm actually less sure there that theology, I don't know that theology necessarily can be directly connected to people perpetrating abuse in the sense that I think, you know, good-hearted person reading a certain theology, it's going to take a lot to change that. And I'm thinking of a man here in particular, my imagination, to to turn that man, man abusive. What I can see it doing is being used to justify and to give cover to abusive tendencies. Uh, I see that much more, but where I really see the effects of complementarian theology with respect to abuse is within the broader um, circle, not perpetrators, but both the response of victims and also of bystanders. So the response of victims, right, it, 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 just story after story shows how difficult it is for evangelical, you know, conservative, complementarian women to even identify something as abuse, which by all accounts is abuse, can't call it out, can't even identify it. They don't even have that framework, um, that sense of, of what it is to be wronged in that way. It's been so naturalized. So that means that abuse can get worse and worse in these spaces and women aren't empowered to um, to resist, to even identify it. And then among the community, this is where I also see, um, see this at play, ideas about um, sexuality, about purity, about guilt, about who's to blame, about gender difference and boys will be boys versus women have these you know extreme standards of modesty and purity that they have to uphold. All of those teachings, which just permeate evangelical popular culture and have now for decades, those matter. And you can hear those precise teachings echoed when abuse surfaces in evangelical spaces. Well, how was she dressed? What was she doing to seduce him? Even when the, when the victim is a young girl, she's accused of seducing so she wasn't dressed modestly seducing her abuser right this is nonsense absolutely horrific nonsense and or what it's the wife's fault how is it the wife's fault because she wasn't meeting her husband's sexual needs as a wife is called to do right this this is and it's not just a one-off where where i came across this it's over and over again and you think this what is even happening here And, and i don't have another way of explaining that outside of these teachings that have permeated their communities for so long and have been taught as God's truth. This is how God created men. This is how God created women. This is a woman's duty to a man. And so that's really where I see the teaching shaping a culture of abuse more than directly prompting somebody to perpetuate abuse. When you, when you start to pull, uh, you know, one thread of conservative evangelical beliefs, you, you start to see all the other threads you can start to pull. Yes. pull. Um, let's say, for example, predominant perspective from this camp on LGBTQ inclusion. Um, you wrote in this, uh, in an article recently, a, a conservative Christian might condemn homosexuality as holy and compatible with Christianity, no exceptions, and work to actively exclude not only Christians in same-sex relationships, but also any Christian willing to exclude from such believers from fellowship until their own children comes out to them and they find that they end up where most of all where their children is, still finding a place um, within the Christian church. I, I wonder, you know, we could 
obviously have a whole podcast conversation around LGBTQ inclusion. But I wonder, um, you know, as, as you look at maybe that specific conversation, how it relates to kind of this idea of their biblical worldview and, and, and mm-hmm. do you think that um, LGBTQ inclusion along with the conversation on um, equality among gender is, is going to be some of the common pieces that pull people out of, of this movement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is so much that can be said on that topic and, um, and, and so many complexities. You know, first of all, it's, it's appropriate, I think, to acknowledge that there is a longer history of LGBTQ exclusion, if you will, in the history of Christianity, or not just exclusion, condemnation. And then as a historian familiar with the historian of sexuality, I can also say there's quite a bit of change over time in terms of what these categories even mean, how we understand sexuality which doesn't mean that there's nothing to this longer tradition, right? So, so I just want to, as a historian, kind of foreground the complexity here and not just choose the pieces that I might like better it, that history has to offer us. But it is true that you know, when we look at biblicism or we look at interpretations of um, sexual morality around same-sex issues in particular, you do tend to see this very, very stark um, and rigid teaching and exclusionary teaching that really doesn't apply in most other facets. And, and one of the things I talked about um, today was a very selective literalism that we see operative in uh, evangelical spaces and selective notions of inerrancy that is not equally applied. And so then what I see in practice is um, I mean, take a uh, take divorce for example. Right, there's some really direct teachings against divorce in the scriptures, <laughs> very direct, and yet there are all kinds of ways around those that evangelicals have found. And nobody's going to say divorce is great; everybody should go get a divorce. But divorce happens, and for all kinds of reasons. And when it does, people pick up the pieces and then they remarry. And they and there's like direct teachings about against that in the scripture. But there are ways um, that that is. Um, uh, kind of understood and softened and applied in different ways with a lot of grace and with a lot of awareness of um, complexity and brokenness and uh, different ways of understanding what um, healing and restoration and redemption might look like in those situations, which when and then none of that framework is applied in the case of LGBTQ in many of the same spaces. And, and to me, that gives me pause. And, and so to your, your question, I think of, you know, kind of why this issue I, I do go back, historically speaking, to as this issue really came to the fore in American history, yes, it was in reaction to the gay rights movement and kind of civil rights for LGBTQ folks and a reaction against that. Uh, but also, this was at the time, this is the story of Jesus and John Wayne, where gender difference was just foregrounded as this is essential to Christianity. It's not just an expression of how we are understanding what it is to be Christian. It is the way to be Christian, the God-ordained structure of society, Uh, and not just gender difference, but hierarchical power. And they placed so much on that understanding that something like LGBTQ um, identities undermine that entirely. The stark gender difference, and there are biological and biblical arguments that that stark binary is uh, overly simplified, and um, and the hierarchies, right, that go along with that stark difference. So that's the context that I think is helpful um, to think about why this issue is the one issue in so many spaces, and sometimes it's also gender is the other issue, right? And, and, and women's authority and patriarchy, right? Those are the non-negotiables. Whereas so many other core, arguably, you know, fairly core teachings on the sacraments, on you know, things like infant baptism, on uh, you know, work of the Holy Spirit, on end times, like all these things that traditionally had really, really been important in terms of dividing Christians, not that we want to divide Christians, <laughs> we're cool with. 
But these are the two issues that evangelicals keep front and center as worthy of dividing the body of Christ. Right? And I just think that historical perspective can be helpful, which is not to say there are not important moral questions to ask here, that there are theological questions, that there are many of these, but the fact that those conversations are not allowed in many spaces at all, certainly not in good faith, I think is detrimental to the church. It's detrimental to people. And I think it, it, it's detrimental to um, a vibrant theological um, uh, community, to a community that knows how to do theology, that, that, that seeks the truth in the scriptures instead of can only parrot back exactly what has been deemed as orthodox uh, across the board. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Now, so I'm chuckling, going back to church history, is as hurtful as religion is today, we're only a couple hundred years removed from like burning people at the stake, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, like, oh, they're so bad. Yeah. That, the very good the historian yeah. to say, yeah, they yeah. were actually worse. I was like, when you said baptism, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember they had a baptist. And we right, just, remember? We, we scorched them. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, when evangelicals uh, strike, um, you know, now become this um, go to person for academic and historic insight. You know, you talked about today how often you get tagged for some of those things. Um, last summer, you were tagged by several new outlets over Roe v. Wade. Oh, um, yeah. You know, so of course, for those that haven't been paying attention, overturning Roe v. Wade has been the rallying cry of white evangelical um, and conservative Catholics for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, from a gender studies perspective, um, take us into why the conservative Christian uh, see uh, issues of reproductive rights and abortion and, and this particular angle. And I guess the other piece is, do you think they're done when it comes to that issue or do you think there's more more to be said? Oh my gosh, they are not done. Absolutely not. Um, but here too, the, the history is complicated. And in fact, I just a few weeks ago gave a talk on this precise subject at, at Harvard for their big 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade conference. And when they started planning that, they did not know that it would be overturned by this point. And so it kind of cast the whole event in a different light. And I was brought in and it was, um, they worked really hard to to achieve ideological and disciplinary diversity and they succeeded. They had pro-life activists and scholars and um, uh, pro-choice activists and scholars and legal experts. So it was this remarkable space. And so what I did there is as one of the very small number of historians present, I opened the talk with um, a number of just, you know, what you need to know from history around the issue of Christians and abortion. And that included things like there's a long history, long history of what we might call, you know, pro-life um, sentiments inside Christian history, Christian tradition. And, uh, you know, there's books written on that. That's important not to skip. And um, there is uh, also a history in the United States of abortion being uh, fairly widely available uh, up to the point of quickening for much of, the, of early American history. And that was among Christians as well as non-Christians because most Americans were actually Christians then, right? So we have that. And we have the fact that um, pro-abortion rights up until mid 20th century were always associated with eugenics. So there's that to grapple with. And then you have the fact that 
Um, as Randall Balmer has showed, you know, abortion was not the early mobilizing factor um, uh, for the religious right. It was school segregation. And later abortion came on and we can argue um, you know, exactly what that means for the movement today. So I just, a whole bunch of, that's just a small portion of the, the facts that I put out there. And then I stopped and said, I mean, so you see, I have now given you everything that you need if you want to make a historical case for or against pro-choice or pro-life, right? You have, you have what you need, but only if you're really selective. And, and that's something that I try to bring to the abortion conversation. It is wrong to say evangelicals only care about abortion because it's cover for their racism. That's, that's not true. Um, they care about it because generations of evangelicals now believe that life begins at conception. They have been taught that and they firmly believe that that is absolutely true to them. I was absolutely taught that growing up. Um, and so I was shocked to go back to the 1968 issue of Christianity Today, a special issue on contraception and abortion. Christianity Today, 1968, um, fascinating article on ensoulment. When does the soul enter the body. And it was not a given that it was at conception. And what does the Bible say? And what do we see in the Old Testament? And what do we see in Jewish tradition? And what do we see in Christian tradition? And I thought, where has this moral and theological reasoning been? I have never encountered that as a Christian uh, because the answer was already given to me. And I thought that was the answer throughout all time. Now you can find people who, who consider abortion murder in Christian history going back centuries, and you can also find a lot who didn't. Hmm. And that's what I think is helpful for us to resurface because these are deep and complex moral issues, and it is important to have the space on both sides to think carefully and critically about about this. I think it's, it's um, I think it can do harm Let's see, I'm, now I'm thinking, oh, this is podcast. This is going to give me in all kinds of trouble. I think it can do harm. <laughs> you know, on the right, we're seeing the, the further kind of radicalization of the quote-unquote pro-life movement in terms of um, punishing women, in terms of, you know, not stopping at certain abortion restrictions, but now going after, you know, uh, different abortion pills and going after you know more and more and you see that goalpost just continually moving so to your question is you know are they are they cool with things no absolutely not you know this is the abolitionist movement inside the pro-life movement is is really gaining strength and is trying to assert power over the rest of the movement and so the movement itself is changing dramatically and I will say on the progressive side too I'm seeing a radicalization that you know i'm old enough to remember not all that long ago that the democratic party's mantra was safe legal and rare and the rare actually meant something and it was meant to be rare because it was not abortion was seen as as a, a problematic issue as uh, as a moral issue still and one that society should care about so what does that mean now that on the left there is no space or less space to see this as an issue that society ought to care about. Even if you end up on the side of, we think it's better for women to have the right to choose what happens when you no longer allow the moral consequences of that policy to even be aired. I think one of the things I love most about um, you is, is just how much you can be like, and just check the research <laughs> just right. check the footnotes you know it's like and i think that's what's so frustrating for people who who have just uh, an experiential level of knowledge around all these issues and you can be like well actually let me take you back in history to this moment um which uh, maybe is a great caveat the, the first time we sat down for an interview there were only so many questions and facets of Jesus and John Wayne that I could bring to, the, to our <laughs> conversation. One particular aspect of the book that we never got to, and I'm glad you brought it up earlier today, which of course our audience would know because they weren't here, um, was your focus on, on Billy Graham. Um, you've noted that you've received pushback from readers around Billy in ways that you maybe haven't for other figures in focus in the book. What do you think it is about Billy that brings about this response, and what does it tell us about the figures we idolize within the Christian movement? 
Yeah, I would say less pushback. It hasn't really been um, negative. It, it more shock. Mm -hmm. More, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa, this is not what I grew up hearing. This is not Billy Graham. That you know, this is not our Billy Graham. Uh, you know, things like his views on the Vietnam War, his uh, you know political ambitions, his justifying the My Lai massacre, those sorts of things. Right? That didn't you know that wasn't their Billy Graham, and but he was such an important symbol to evangelicals for so many reasons because he was he was their celebrity evangelicals have always loved celebrities because they're convinced that if there's somebody who's popular uh in like outside of religious spaces they're going to draw people to christ and so billy graham the fact that he was not just in and out of the white house but that he could draw tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people uh, people to his crusades that he was, you know, his, his, his face was on the front page of national magazines and the front page of newspapers. That was wonderful because they could kind of um, identify with that celebrity, with that power. If, they, if Americans loved him, then they loved them too. And, and, and so, and then they would be attracted. And so this would all be for God's glory because people would go to the crusade and that they, then they would be um, converted. And there's this real sense that really this was God's work. This was like purely God's work. He, that's what Billy Graham said, right? He was doing God's work. That's what people were, you know, paying money for, to donate to him, to do God's work. And that work was saving souls, saving souls. But when you listen to his sermons, when you listen what what he actually taught, there is a whole lot more than quote unquote soul saving that goes into those sermons, yeah. right? There's views on gender, there's views on the Cold War, there's views on government, there's views on all sorts of things that are packaged and then sold as this is Christianity. To love God is to love these things, right? To, to be obedient to God is to be loyal to these things. And so that's really what I unpack in the book. And that's the side of Billy Graham that a lot of people had never heard of. They'd only heard how he was idolized. And one of the points that I made is that I didn't do archival research and dig up anything new on Billy Graham. The Billy Graham that I present in Jesus and John Wayne is the Billy Graham that historians know. This is a, a, so many historians have written about him in, in different books, biographies, in passing. This is the Billy Graham historians know. And so there's this disconnect between the Billy Graham that historians know and the Billy Graham that evangelicals mm. know. And so one of the things this book did is it didn't, didn't kind of chart any new territory on that issue. But what it did is it brought what historians know and we've known for decades and then introduced it to evangelicals. And that's really, so it's not pushback as much as, wow, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, I think my first introduction to a different side of Billy was Kevin Cruz's book, In God We Trust. Yep. And learning about kind of the creation of this, you know, this myth that America as a, as a Christian nation. And, and let me say Cruz is one of my sources, right? Yeah. I, I quote from Cruz and I cite Cruz in Jesus and John Wayne. So he's one of, you know, a half dozen historians I'm drawing on who presents this other Billy Graham. So, so Graham elevates an aspect of dialogue in your book that create, uh, is created within local churches. Our congregations are full of people who are woefully unaware of so much um, of what you bring into focus. Yeah. And therefore discussing these matters quite literally feels like their entire theological worldview is being turned upside down and yeah. shaken. And, and we know that, we know from cognitive psychology that most people entrench themselves more when they believe someone else is trying to change their mind on something. So from, from the pastors you've networked with, um, what would you say have been some of the best practices of ways to have difficult conversations that come out of your research within the local church? Uh, I don't have any, any great answers here because I don't know what has worked well in the local church among those who are resistant to change or to, to rethinking things, right? So I hear from so many people who read the book who are open to it. And so that's where the book can do really powerful work. It doesn't, it, I, I guess I've heard from a few people that kind of changed, changed them in ways they were completely not expecting. But for many, it kind of affirmed what they were already seeing and empowered them in that direction. I think that's what the book does more than kind of changing direction because you have to be open to it. As you said, a lot of people just aren't. And I think there are, 
you know, psychological reasons for why kind of directly confronting isn't always the best thing to do. Um, so I don't, I don't have great advice for pastors, honestly, in terms of how best to do this. I really do think we need to pay much more. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. I, I think we need to pay much more attention to social psychologists, frankly, in this moment that we find ourselves in. That's something I referenced today in my talk as well that we tend to reduce everything in, in religious spaces to theology. And I do think theology is important. Theology is important in kind of grounding my own faith, my own identity, how I see the world, how I understand my role in this world. I do not think theology is unimportant, but I also know that we humans are complicated creatures and that our emotions and our, our social connections all come into play. And as somebody who raised in the reform direction, uh, tradition, uh, to think in terms of like structure and direction, to think in terms of all of the many ways that we can respond obediently or disobediently to God, all of the many facets that shape who we are, psychological, biological, social, right? All of these different things are all part of God's creation. And that in my tradition then, we should engage all of those parts of God's creation. We should understand ourselves in terms of our psychology, in terms of our biology, in terms of all of these different things and then see how they all come together. And so it isn't just theology. And what we think is just theology can actually be deeply shaped. I mean, usually I'm saying how it's shaped by a historical context, but absolutely we can talk about psychology and we can talk about that individually and then socially. And, and there is so much good work out there right now. What we need are people who can kind of translate that work because often it's in academic journals or it's in not super accessible sources. We need people who can translate that, who can kind of mediate that, um, but, but then um, um, scholars too who are willing to kind of go into these spaces where people are not used to thinking mm -hmm. in these terms, where you're just going to know, have to know that you're going to get pushback. That's where, that's where I do get pushback, right? Um, where the history that I'm bringing is being perceived as a theological threat. And now there's nothing in a, in a history book in Jesus and John Wayne that says, what theological interpretation is correct or incorrect, right? That's not what history does. It doesn't answer those theological questions, but it can help us see how we came to conclude which theological answers were right or wrong. And we can see where some of those decisions brought us, what were the fruits of some of those teachings. And then that can bring us back to reconsider. And I think that's all we, you know, that's all I'm asking really but that openness is not always there because so many people have so thoroughly conflated their perceptions of truth with ultimate truth that as soon as you start to kind of shake the foundations of their perceptions, it seems like a direct attack on the faith itself. Yeah. So we'll send maybe one or two questions on some good news. <laughs> <laughs> um, following your work the last few years has been informative and enlightening in so many ways for so many different people. But one way you might not hear is from uh, some of us that, um, you know, that affirm and celebrate your work is the way that you conduct yourself with such Christ-likeness in the face of such religious hostility. Um, you know, a stroll through the last week on Twitter, um, one can get a glimpse into the vitriol that you receive from angry and insecure white evangelical men. Um, First, thank you for being an amazing example for, for those of us that maybe would not respond as graciously. And second, you know, what's the secret behind um, your calm con composure um, when, when many in your shoes would maybe not respond so, so prudently? Uh, I guess one thing I did discover in, in the wake of releasing the book and being in the spotlight like this is I, I apparently have very thick skin, so very few things actually bother me. Um, but I think it's, it's more than that, that as a historian, I, before I entered into these spaces as Crispin Dumay, I observed these spaces for years, right? For more than a decade, I watched how this culture worked and I figured it out over time. I didn't go in like knowing what I was gonna say at all. I just started to pay attention. For years, I started reading their books, uh, reading their blogs, 
watching kind of their networks as they developed, as they, as they um, kind of tightened, expanded, I watched the conflicts. I, I watched how the conflicts were resolved and I watched their behaviors. And I watched their behaviors toward each other and I watched their behaviors towards women and I watched their behaviors towards um, victims of sexual abuse. And so I charted that for a very long time and then I wrote the book trying to make sense of it and, and, um, and tie all these pieces together. And then I put the book out there and then I encountered some of these guys in real life <laughs> or at least on Twitter, right? And so by that time, I knew so much about them and I knew that this is exactly what we should expect from, if the book is right, this is how they should respond. And so I just have not been able to take this personally at all. When, and then I also have, I think, like I don't live in those spaces. I was only ever evangelical adjacent at best, right? This is not my primary world. This is not my source of affirmation or my source of identity. And so frankly, it matters not at all to me what some of these guys think of me at all. It really doesn't. It's just interesting. It's interesting. And that's it. And, um, you know, in terms of them, you know, calling me a heretic or um, a false teacher, things like that, you know, it's just my faith is so grounded in my church community and my tradition. It's deeply personal. And so it just seems laughable that anybody like that could. Um, think that they have a right or even the knowledge to um, to dismiss it. So it just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't even touch me. It just seems absurd, honestly. So much of it seems absurd. But what I do enjoy is not letting them get away with what they've been doing for so long, what they've been doing to their own, the women in their own spaces, how they've been treating them. And so I, I do know it comes at me. They're directing the same kind of disparagement, the sneering, this and sometimes I worry that what they're really doing there is it's not really about me. I'm afraid that they're trying to send messages to women in, who are under their authority, mm -hmm. under their power. This is what's going to happen to you if you step out of line. And so I've talked to women in those spaces because it, it concerns me a lot. What they tell me is we are watching you and we cannot do what you're doing. But when we watch you, we see that it is possible to walk through fire and not be burned. Hmm. And to me, I th and then they say, please keep doing it, right? And, and, and so, so that's, I think there's something to that, that it shows people their absurdity. It shows people who they really are, um, the weakness of, and the shallowness of their theology and um, it, it shows their character. And I think it's worth something putting that on display. Hmm. Well, let's go right there for the last question, um, which is um, you among this, really the siege uh, against this movement, and I don't want to say like antagonistic towards this movement, mm -hmm. this, this siege of um, identifying toxic masculinity and militarism and misogyny and sexism and sexual abuse and not to mention racism, which we haven't even got mm -hmm. into. Um, it, has a, it has created um, a platform for people to feel like they can walk across a bridge that they didn't, they feel like they were alone in this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that they, the victims of this kind of movement. So much uh, we give voice and a platform to the perpetrators, but never the victims. So I wonder if, if you might be willing to share some of the, um, maybe a story or uh, the things that you hear back from people who are coming out of this or experiencing this that you would want to share with, with other people who maybe can't relate to it because they haven't experienced that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do hear from a lot of survivors. And I think one of the things that this book does for them, one of the most important things is lets them know that they're not alone. Because for many, it was this feeling of absolute isolation because the, this is their community. This is their church. These are their, the people they trusted. And then when something terrible happens to them, these are the people they go to trusting that they're going to help because 
they read all the books about sexual morality and they you know they read the bible they like these are you know good guys and bad guys right and then it doesn't work that way and it that really really messes with with people in, in a way that I mean some survivors has, have told me that that's actually worse than the abuse itself mm-hmm. is the response of people they trusted and that that is much harder to move past than the actual abuse and I don't want to say that's the case for all but it's it was startling to hear that from some because it makes them question everything it's not just something bad that happened, but it questions what is even bad and are you even worth anything? And really, aren't you the problem here? And so I, I've just, I, I've heard too many stories to that effect. And then I've also, but I'm hearing these stories from women who have persevered, right? So years walking through this and finding their way to another side, whatever that side looks like. Sometimes that's in a healthy church and their faith is stronger than it ever was. Sometimes it's leaving the church. Sometimes it's leaving the faith. But I see this remarkable courage that women have had to show to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then some of those women put themselves out there to speak publicly. And that comes at such a high cost. That's something that I, in the book, I I don't, um, I only included stories of women who had already gone public. And I've since heard from a number of women who hadn't gone public. And I, um, I, I just think that that act of going public is, it's so fraught because I know what's going to be thrown at them. And I know it could very easily be worse than what they've already been through or certainly compound what they've already been through and and so I mean I've talked with abuse um, I've talked to survivors survivor advocates um, consulted spent spent real time thinking about this the idea that you know women are often told going public is empowering Hmm. that you owe it to other victims that you uh, and I just know First of all, it's I've not yet seen one case where going public with stories of, of abuse is empowering to the woman who does it. She will face brutal backlash and it will consume her life for years, if not like indefinitely, right? So I just see that and I I I feel a responsibility as somebody who amplifies voices to do so with great care and to do so if at all possible in a way that does give them power but also um, doesn't make things worse for them. So I guess that's something that I I think a lot about. I'm not sure that I do perfectly. I listen and I consult and I think about what it is to really really help protect women. And honestly, it just gets so frustrating to see the viciousness of the attacks coming at women especially any women who speak out against abuse. I mean, the patterns are right there in front of us. And these from men, the very men who claim that it's their God-appointed authority to protect women, and they justify all kinds of personal power in, in, in that way. It's, you know, it's, it's for the protection of women. And then I see what they do to women, and I say, no, this is just, it's, it's rotten to the core. Our guest is Dr. Kristen Kobe's Dumang. If you want to stay connected with her, visit kristendumay.com. Kristen, it's an honor to have you back on the podcast. I was one of those things where I was like, I can't believe we got her the first time, and we got her twice. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you for your willingness to methodically uncover the problematic history of toxic gender uh, ideologies and racism of a movement that is, is still, still long overdue for, for reckoning. But more importantly, thank you for calling people to the, the goodness and love of, of of a different version of Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you. I love the way you put that. Thank you. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. 
It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.